Amen. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so my name is Matt. Um, I'm here with my wife, Ashley, and a few of my family members, and my little daughter, Ray, who's very cute and is upstairs uh, loving life. So we're from Emmanuel Church um, down in Malile, and it's just so good he- to be here this morning. It's actually extra special for me to be here this morning. I grew up not so far from here uh, in my teenage years in Orangefield, so I spent a lot of time running around these streets uh, causing havoc. And if you could have went back from now till then and spoke to a 15-year-old me, he would have laughed in your face uh, if you'd uh, told him that I would be here. And this is just a testimony of God and what he's done in my life, and we give him all the glory. So today we are in the Gospel of John, so John chapter 6, and we're going to look uh, at encountering Jesus together in the passage. So John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. And I want to cover the majority of it, but with a specific focus on verses 22 to 71. Um, I had a debate with Ashley when I looked at the the chapter and these verses. It's 50 verses. It's a lot. And whether or not I could read them all or how long that would take. And uh, I had them all typed out and stuff. And in in my my sermon notes, and I started reading them out to myself in the room. And I realized it would take me about 15 minutes. So I decided not to. So we're going to cut down and we're going to focus on verses 22 where am I? It's 25 to 35. So John chapter 6 contains some of the most theological and Christological statements in the Gospels, including statements on the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the election. It's a difficult passage. I'm not going to preach verse by verse, but I want to read out this portion of the text. It's important for us to grasp what is going on in this passage. This is the most important part of the sermon, the reading of God's word. Let's read God's word together. So verses, John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. I encourage you to, if you have a Bible, uh, or if you have the the wee document there, if you follow along with me here, it says this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may say and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us the bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, these verses are hard to read and even harder to understand. And I pray that you'll help us fully grasp the value in these verses. Help us understand how we can apply them to our lives. Aid us as we desire to encounter Jesus. Amen. 
So the author records a dialogue here in these verses between Jesus and a number of different groups in a synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus basically, in these verses, is preaching a sermon. He's preaching a sermon to a crowd, and today I'm going to preach a sermon on a sermon. A sermon that clearly identifies Jesus as the Son of God and focuses us on the cross. The dialogue can be summed up by the last verse that I read out there, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The sermon delivered by Jesus many years ago has profound importance for each one of us today in a church in Clarewood. We can only find true satisfaction by encountering Christ alone. This is the big idea that I want to get across this morning. And if you don't leave with anything, leave with this. We can only find true satisfaction by encountering Christ alone. John chapter 6 can be separated into three parts. And if you are following on your Bible, you'll see this laid out. The first part is Jesus feeds the 5,000. The second, Jesus walks on water. And the third, the bread of life dialogue. And bread is a common theme throughout this whole chapter. And I found some interesting and lighthearted facts about bread, right? So the longest loaf of bread that's ever been baked, right, is 1.2 kilometers long. So like from here to where I used to live in Orangefield, like it's... It's a big bit of bread. Germans consume more bread than any other country in the world per capita. There are over a hundred different types of bread available around the, earth, the world, and each country has its own take on bread. And this is the best one, right? And I, I, I promise you that this is true. The sandwich, right, is named after John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, who started eating beef between two pieces of bread. 100%, that's true. Honestly, look it up on Google. But on a more somber note, right, I watched, um, we've all probably had a, had a look at some of the, the horrific events that are occurring in Israel and Gaza at the minute, and I watched this video, and it was this guy, and he was cycling along his bike in Gaza City, and he was overjoyed as he just got a bag of bread so he could feed his family. Bread is eating all over the world to satisfy hunger. And John chapter 6 starts with a story where Jesus and his disciples are faced with thousands of hungry people. So Jesus has just crossed the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd has followed him. And these crowds weren't just following him, they were pursuing him. Jesus was moving, and they were running after him. They were frantically following Jesus wherever he went. And we see in verse 2, the reason why the crowd were following Jesus wasn't because they wanted to hear him speak. It's because of the signs he was doing. He was moving around, um, healing the sick, conducting miracles. And this is important to remember as we get to the Bread of Life dialogue shortly. And in the story of the feeding of 5,000, we see Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and he's, he's, he doesn't know what to do. There's a crowd everywhere, and they're all getting hungry. And there seems to be this expectation from uh, Philip that they feed them, that the disciples feed the crowd. And we see the famous miracle where Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and feeds close to 12,000 to 15,000 people if we include men, women, and children. And the crowd replied to this miracle in verse 14 in chapter 6. In this, when, they saw, when the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world. 
Jesus proceeds then from there to withdraw from the area, and we read on to see in for a further sign Jesus walking on water, in verses 16 to 21. The feeding of the 5,000 sets the backdrop of what we're going to look at today, the bread of life dialogue. The crowd listening to Jesus in the synagogue would be made up of the same people, a lot of the same people that had just been fed in the feeding of the 5,000. They had partaken in the meal. And as Jesus arrived after walking on water, the crowds were still relentlessly pursuing him and they find him again on the other side of the lake. And we see in verse 26 that Jesus immediately questions their intentions. Jesus answered them saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus states here, the crowds are not following him simply because of the miraculous sign, but because they were getting food. They're getting free food. Their bellies had been filled. We all know that food gets people out. If you want to like, get lots of people to church meeting, you put on a, a free meal. It's like Alpha. Like Alpha's great, but you have to bring food. food. Food gets people there. We all love food. But the crowd had missed the whole point. The point of Jesus feeding the 5,000 wasn't to feed their bellies. And this is what we see in the Bread of Life dialogue. Jesus explaining what he means and what the sign meant. The crowd had focused on the physical bread. And they wanted more of this. But Jesus in verse 27 points them towards a bread that doesn't spoil. The food that was provided during the feeding of the 5,000 was doomed to perish. Instead of focusing on the bread, we should focus on the bread that gives eternal life. But what is this bread? What is the bread that gives eternal life? Is it a magical bread in a far off land that once you eat it, you go to heaven, you live forever. Jesus states clearly, and he gives us the answer in verse 35. He is the bread of life. Jesus did not come to provide the bread. He is the bread. Those who are hungry and thirsty will find satisfaction in him. Jesus states, I am the bread of life. And this is the first of a number of I am statements that we see in the Gospels of John where Jesus is claiming to be God. He claims to be divine. And Jesus is calling for the crowd to believe in him, not as a prophet, but as the son of God, God himself. And here we see the doctrine of the Trinity played out. In verses 36 to 58, Jesus changes his focus to those people who will truly respond to his invitation to believe in him. We see promises about security, destiny, and identity of believers. And in the last section of John chapter 6, Jesus addresses his disciples, a wider group than the 12, and we see a number of them leave. And then Jesus comes back to a smaller group, his 12 disciples, and we see uh, the dialogue between them. This is a bit of an overview of what has happened in John chapter 6. Now, I want to bring out three points from the long dialogue, okay? The first one is this. Christ alone satisfies our very hearts. Number two, we cannot trust our stomachs. And the last one, moving away from body parts. Number three is, how do we encounter Jesus? How do we partake of this meal? How do we, and how can we come to Jesus and eat and drink?
So Christ alone satisfies our very hearts. Our physical hunger is relentless. Our hunger cannot be satisfied. I love food, and sometimes um, if I've got a, like a special meal, say it's a birthday meal, and we're going to a fancy restaurant, I'll often like starve myself that day. Like I'll not eat lunch; I'll skip lunch because we all know that once we're if we're really really hungry, everything tastes nicer, right? So I'll starve myself. I'll eat my fill. I'll be satisfied. I'll go home, go to bed, but I'm not satisfied for long. I'll wake up, and as soon as I wake up, the first thing I think about is more food, right? I'm hungry again. The satisfaction that I felt from the meal the night before didn't last long. I have to eat again and again, and we all have to do it. We have to eat regularly to stay satisfied. And in the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd had been fed, but it didn't satisfy them for long. They got hungry again. The crowd wanted more food, and they pursued Jesus as he moved around. And we see Jesus addressing this in verses 25 and 26. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then Jesus rebukes them and points them out that they have gotten this all wrong. They have missed the whole point of everything. And Jesus goes on to clarify this. He says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give to you. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The reason why the people were there is because they wanted their stomachs filled. Now, it's important to point out that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for being hungry. He doesn't tell them off and say, you shouldn't be hungry that's not what he rebukes him for. God created humans to crave. He creates us with desires that need satisfied. This is part of God's perfect creation. And I want to show you this by going back to the book of Genesis in Genesis 2:15. It reads this: "The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden." But the but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Even in the beginning, we see Adam and Eve needing food. It's not the case that our hunger or desire is a result of the fall. We needed food from the beginning. However, our needs were designed to be met by our creator, God. Our needs, humanity's needs, are designed to be met by our creator, God. And this is what happened before the fall. We see Adam and Eve, in Eve ugh, Adam and Eve, not in Eden, Adam and Eve in the garden with everything they needed. They had God there. They had everything. You see, brothers and sisters, we have God-shaped holes in our hearts. We are created to desire and to be satisfied by God alone. And sin corrupted this, right? Sin points us to other things to try and satisfy the true desires of our hearts, the desire to be united with Christ. And if we're really, really honest with each other, we sin because we think it's good for us. We think that it's going to have a good outcome. We think it's desirable. We convince ourselves that the sinful course of action that we take is best for us. We try and satisfy ourselves apart from God 
And we end up running in the exact opposite direction from what our soul longs for the most. In the words of Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. This is what happened in Genesis 3. In the, the account of the fall, we see Adam and Eve choosing to find satisfaction away from God. And this is exactly what we see in John 6. We see the crowds chasing and chasing after Jesus and comparing him to Moses because in the wilderness, Moses gave the people bread from heaven, right? But Jesus rebukes this claim. It wasn't Moses that provided them bread from heaven. It was God. And Jesus clarifies this again. I know I keep repeating it, but it's a great verse in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying, I am your provision. I am what you need. I am the one who can satisfy your cravings. In our lives, in this world, we can only find true satisfaction in Christ alone. We are created with God-shaped holes in our hearts that can only be made whole by coming to Christ, who comes down from heaven and gives life the world. The word will tell us that lots of different things will satisfy us. It tells us that money, sex, a new car, the perfect family. Before uh, I became a Christian, I spent my time uh, trying to be happy, as, as most of us do, if we're honest in our lives. And I jumped from relationship to relationship and focused on my career and you know, tried to increase the money in my bank account. But it was never enough. You can always have more fun. You can always have more money. It wasn't until God reached out in his grace and opened up my heart to the truth of the gospel that everything changed. My heart found who it was truly satisfied in. Theologian and philosopher Augustine says this, my heart was restless until it found rest in you. Maybe some of you have a story like that. Maybe you're currently in the restless state. But we are created to be satisfied in one thing only. Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that when I became a Christian, when we become a Christian, that everything is going to be great all the time and we're never going to have any bad days. It's far from that. But what I'm saying is what we get from Christ is something different, something we can't get anywhere else, something that can satisfy us eternally and spiritually. As Christians, it's our constant battle to remind ourselves that true satisfaction is not found in the gifts that God gives us, but in the giver, in God himself. Our satisfaction isn't truly found on anything God has created. God's creation is good, but our satisfaction is ultimately found in Christ. Now, if we're really, really honest, right, and we think about this, this often isn't the case. If we look at our lives, our church, our culture, we do think that God is not enough from us. Like we can have God, but we need all these other things as well. Jonathan Edwards writes this. Our external delights, our earthly pleasures, our ambition, 
our reputation, and our human relationships. For all these things, our desires are eager and our appetites strong, our love warm and affectionate. But, but, is there anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable, more desirable in heaven or on earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are. We can only find true satisfaction for the inner ache of our hearts in Christ. And Jesus promises if we come to him, we will never hunger. We will never thirst. It isn't like our hunger for food that needs to be replenished over and over again. What a promise. What a savior. Jesus alone can satisfy the needs of our hearts. So point number two. We cannot trust our stomachs. This is another issue that was presented uh, in the passage. And when faced with Jesus' miracles, the crowd's immediate reaction was a selfish one. They don't give God glory. They don't give Jesus glory. They just they think about themselves. The crowd saw a man running around doing miracles. And they immediately thought it was their promised Messiah, a prophet that would help them achieve their political aims. They immediately thought about themselves and what they could get from Jesus. Their desires were self-seeking and prideful. And this is further evidenced by their obsession with getting more food. As human beings, pride is our main human problem. We refuse to trust God and we place ourselves in the very center of our existence. We choose to disobey God, and we make idols of ourselves. I don't know if this is going to be a shock, but brothers and sisters, we are not the center of the world, right? Each one of you, the world does not revolve around you. We are not the most important thing on the planet. It's not about us. Psychology, I spent three years of my life, which was a bit of a waste, studying psychology uh, a number of years ago. Um, yeah. So psychology suggests that our main uh, problem as a human race is that we despise ourselves, right? We hate ourselves. And Carl Rogers is an influential psychologist. And he writes this. If I were to search for the eternal core of difficulty in people as I have come to know them, it is that in the great majority of cases, they despise themselves. They regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. I want to point you in a different direction than what is outlined here. A direction that couldn't be further from Carl Rogers' valiant attempt at explaining the human condition. Proverbs 11:2 says, If when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and, of, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. At the root cause of our sin, at the root cause of our rebellion, is pride. Augustine says this, it was pride that changes angels into devils. 
It is humility that makes men angels. We see this pride betrayed in the fall in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They put themselves before God, and this led to the downfall of humanity. Our hearts are filled with pride, and this is the original sin. We want to be gods of our own world. I've recently became a father uh, to a beautiful daughter, and, and she is great, and I'm proud to give her a bit of abuse here, but she is really, really incredible, and I love her so much. But even as a baby, you can see the effects of sin. I'm so glad that's not her coming in now. <laughs> even as a baby, we can see the effects of sin in her life. Rhea wants what she wants when she wants it. When she doesn't get what she wants, she throws herself about, and it's quite funny when she's eating and she's decided that she's finished. She obviously can't tell us that. So she grabs the food and she throws it across the room, that way and that way, hitting off the window and the, the walls, and, and I try and stop her and tell her no, and she just shouts at me and throws her head back and gives off. She's only 13 months, like, so I'm going to get her a bit of stick, but the point is, Rhea's natural disposition, what her natural way in life is, it's to satisfy herself when she wants it. From birth, we are tainted by this pride. And this is why we cannot trust our stomachs. We cannot trust what we crave. We are idol makers whose natural view of the world is to put ourselves above God. It's not that we despise ourselves. It's that we actually love ourselves too much. We make ourselves many gods. So what is the antidote to this? What is the cure Jesus makes it clear in John 6. Come to me. I am the bread of life. Jesus is saying, I am the answer. I am the solution to your pride. Your stomach tells me you want the world, but I am what you really need. I am the bread. Death to us and life in Christ. In the words of the hymn, it's one of my favorite hymns uh, when I survey, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a tribute far too small. God so amazing, so divine. Nothing in this world, nothing can compare to unity with Christ. What an incredible gift. We can only turn from our pride and find true satisfaction in Christ. And the last point, Number three, how do we encounter Jesus? How do we partake of this meal? And how can we come to Jesus and eat and drink? We encounter a Jesus in this passage that loves us. We see a Jesus who loves the lost, who is pleading with them to come to him and eat and drink. Jesus loves me, yes I know, for the Bible tells me so. What an incredible building you have, right? This is amazing. I love it. I love what you have done with it. I love where it is. It's incredible. And we live in a culture that can be described as post-Christian. We were even talking about it as we came here today. You know, when we were driving here from Dundonald, it wasn't people getting ready to go from church. It was people just like walking their dogs and, and just going for coffee and with no no desire, nothing to, to go to church to hear about God. We live in a world that could be described as post-Christian. We have more and more people growing up who have never heard the gospel, who have never encountered Jesus. If you look out of these windows, right, 
where you're situated here in Clarewood, it's filled with houses, filled with houses, filled with people, filled with families who are trying to satisfy their needs, the needs that they think they need to satisfy with the wrong things, with the things that the world tells them they need. It's a mission field, a mission field that is filled with despair, people on the path to destruction. And what they need most of all, what they need most of all is an encounter with the risen Christ, an encounter with a God who loves them, who came to this world to die on the cross. We play no part in our individual salvation. This is by grace alone, through Christ alone, completely the work of God. We take no credit, but we do play a part in reaching the lost and helping others encounter Jesus. God, in his infinite wisdom, has allowed us to be part of this, a part of his salvation plan. He has allowed us to participate in people encountering him. What a privilege. What a privilege we have to be part of this story. The lost encounter Jesus through faithful disciples sharing his glorious gospel, which is the power unto salvation. Through people like you, planting a church in an area of need and having the desire to reach the lost by fulfilling the Great Commission, which says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the ends of the age. My prayer is that we all in this room, and Christians everywhere, will be passionate about helping people encounter Jesus. And the good news is this, right? We don't do it on our own. God is clear. He is with us. He is with us to the ends of the age. He will build his church. We don't do this in our own strength. We do this in partnership with God, who's the creator of the heavens and the earth. The world needs Christians who testify to the world of the ultimate satisfaction that we have found in Christ alone. The world needs you to testify to the world of the ultimate satisfaction that you have found in Christ alone. Is that, is that us, church? Are we radical about the gospel? Are we radical about Christ? Are we radical about seeing people encounter God? The Bible outlines clearly how we encounter Jesus. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To encounter Jesus, we need to believe in him, to place him in the center of our lives. And for us as Christians, this is a regular thing. We have to base ourselves in the Bible. We have to come to him in prayer. He needs to be the center of everything that we desire, everything that we need. And in the latter verses of John 6, as I move to close, we see a number of people turning away from Jesus because of the nature of the message, before Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says this. It's not on your wee sheep. If you have your Bible, verse 66 to 69 says this. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall I go? We have the word of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One. May that be the cry of our hearts this morning. Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? The twelve are radical, radical about Jesus, radical about living their life for him. And they grasp that Jesus is the Son of God, the Holy One. They grasp that nothing else in this world can satisfy them. Where would they go? Jesus is what satisfies their very hearts. Nothing can compare. Let us respond like the twelve. There is nowhere else for us to go. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. In our lives, in this world, we can only find true satisfaction by encountering Christ alone. Let's pray together.